I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. I'm super excited to share with you this totally fascinating and far-reaching conversation with Kulapat Yatransat. In addition to geeking out on climate control in museums, we talk about how architecture allows us to live fully. But first, a message of gratitude for our sponsors. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else and I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E.com backslash Heidi and they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable, high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website, www.bestincoaspen.com, and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co.'s website. I was just looking at it today, and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestandcoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O-A-S-P-E-N.com. And mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. Kulapat Yatranset is a thought leader and practitioner in the fields of architecture, art, and design. Originally from Thailand and now based in Los Angeles, he is the founding partner and creative director of Y, 
a multidisciplinary design practice organized into dedicated workshops, buildings, landscape, museums, objects, and ideas. His museum projects include the Grand Rapids Art Museum, the expansion of the Speed Art Museum in Louisville, Kentucky, gallery design and planning for Harvard Art Museums, and the Art Institute of Chicago, and currently a major gallery renovation of the Rockefeller Wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He and I discuss museums as a place where time stands still, the sexiness and honesty of parking structures, the ease and seduction of digital solutions, loving cities, redefining everything, and what missing your own self feels like. Good morning. Nice to start the day talking with you. Thank you, Heidi. Last night I went back to a museum really for the first time in, I mean, I was briefly in the Aspen Art Museum, but basically for the first time in five months. And it was super familiar, which also felt really unfamiliar. <laughs> and I wonder if you've been back to a museum yet. I have, you know, I was at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco uh, just around two weeks ago because we just completed the expansion of it. But we plan to open this fall, which I think uh, we might open to the public then, but we might open the Nick Bill expansion sometime next year. So it's, you're absolutely right. It feels very, it's like something is frozen in time. Right? I couldn't have predicted that that would be the feeling. Absolutely right, yes. <laughs> I've been thinking about the artwork that's been installed in museums, but no one's been looking at it, and what that must feel like, you know, for the art, if it's happy to have a, a little bit of a break from being seen, or if it's missed visitors, and, you know, how those spaces sort of feel absent of, of people. It's interesting you say, because, you know, like when if you think about, you know, like some kind of popular movie like The Night at the Museum or Russian <laughs> art or something like that, that the life of the museum and art without people, right? And you can't imagine, you can start imagine like all of this get animated and they start speaking to one another <laughs> and they create, create their own like community that you know, the art, the paintings and other things start to, to talk. And I think that's, kind of interesting way because in a way it humbles me because I feel like life will moved on with or without people. <laughs> That's what I was thinking about also. And I'd love to have you talk a bit about your practice and how you are thinking about designing spaces because you have done so many museum spaces and of course they have been conceived of to be filled with people because that's always been the goal. I think, you know, the role of a museum architect or designer is really the matchmaker, you know, between art and people, right? I think, I think the idea of creating a perfect environment or space that allow people to be comfortable and art to be comfortable and uplifting and then let that encounter be what they want it to be, you know, nothing forceful or nothing dictated so that's that's what what it is 
so, you know, like what you say, within this time when people are not in the museums, uh, they would feel like that. And, you know, in a way, it, it kind of go back to, you know, the concept of the museum in the 19th century, right? I think the idea that uh, art is, you know, within the temple of culture will continue forever uh, with or without people because that's kind of the time capsule of civilization of, of, of culture further on. So it kind of kind of went back to that kind of notion that this is this is a place where time stands still. And so even though it's really quite uh, interesting to see, I really miss that interaction. And I think that, you know, I think that the place where energy and, and culture happens. Uh, so I can't wait to see how museums are reopening again to, uh, to people and to communities. What do you think needs to happen for people to feel comfortable in those spaces? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been involved with quite some museums and on the board of some, I design many. So I've been in a lot of conversations with museums about what is safe for them, right? I think in a way museums still maybe more fortunate than let's say theater or concert hall or even stadiums where, you know, in, in, in a typical sense, people don't really touch too many things in the museum. So the social distancing and the kind of touch uh, is, uh, you know, can be designed so that it's less of a problem for, 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 for social distancing. So that's, that's definitely doable. The other part that I think could be uh, also done is the idea that, um, you know, programming. I think people will want more intimate relationship. People will want the idea that, uh, you know, uh, uh, people, they can queue, you know, there will not be that kind of blockbusters that, you know, hundreds of people will be in the same room, all of that. I think everything would be more program and more time. So, so I think that would be the future. And I think a lot of museum has planned it that way. Last night, when we were walking through the spaces, every gallery had a placard that was saying what the maximum number of allowable people was. And so I was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver, and they have a lot of really small spaces, and it was a Nari Ward exhibition. And so he creates these large sculptures and sculptural installations. And we were there kind of right before closing, you know, within the last hour of the museum, uh, which is never a, a very popular time in museums, but it's a time that I like to go because there mm -hmm. aren't a lot of people there. And I, I felt like they were very proactive in, in posting that. And I mean, I'm, I wasn't particularly concerned about going to the museum and or, uh, the kind of safety aspect of it, but I, I felt that kind of proactivity would probably make a lot of people very comfortable. I think so too. I think some of these are psychological, right? P different people have different uh, standards or sense of reservations towards that. I think, you know, in that sense, museums or any public spaces really have to be considerate and mindful for all kind of uh, levels of, of concerns people have. So definitely you, you have to be almost urged towards the more communicative and conservative sides of things. But when you go look back at history, right, I think it's, it's also interesting because museum has always been the hub 
of a community, just exactly what you have done in Aspen, you know, how it really anchor not only art, but culture and education and social life as well. So in a time when you look back at history, you know, when this pandemic or some kind of, uh, you know, this kind of exists, uh, people will shift towards, you know, the outdoor, uh, outdoor gardens, you know, botanical parks, street art, and many other things. So I think it's interesting how museum, which is basically mostly an indoor environment, will embrace something of a larger, almost more also exterior oriented as well. I've been thinking about exactly the same thing and the, the benefits that certain places will have in terms of their climate um, and the hindrance that other places will have also because of their climate. Absolutely, you're right. Yes, I mean, I, I live between New York and LA, and that contrast could not be more pronounced, like what you say. But at the same time, you know, even in LA, people are not using the outdoor as well as they could because, you know, we, in a way, like hindered by parking spaces and other things. Mm -hmm. So with this pandemic, it really forced people to be more creative using outdoor spaces for not only parking, but also art installations and gathering. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about that because I've always been super fascinated with parking garages and, <laughs> and the opportunity <laughs> to install work there. I don't know, it's been one of my kind of micro obsessions. I, I love the idea of uh, these kind of empty spaces which, which have the framing devices you know, of um, the floor and the roof, which are you know, the, the stack places for parking, but then also the flow of air and then the natural light, but then also the kind of shadowing uh, that, that comes from the, the horizontality mixed with the verticality of it. But what are you thinking about in terms of parking and parking spaces and art? I think, you know, parking is, you know, never real, very few occasions that rise above the functionality of it. It's something that most developers or builders of building just trying to do the lease just to get by by code. So the ceiling highs is always low and, you know, the logistic of, of that, it's kind of its own building type. But I completely agree with you. There's something very sexy about parking structure especially when it's done right, because it's so honest. It's, it's all about storage, but it has the DNA and the kind of party. And a lot of them, most of them are concrete too, which really made it have this sense of tectonic uh, in addition to the framework and you know, the, the, the kind of honest kind of uh, sense of kind of framing that you mentioned. So, so, so I felt that uh, it's very interesting and so with that, you know, I think more and more people might be interested in using that. I think, of course, it's limited by the, the ceiling height that is normally refined by that. Uh, a lot of people are, you know, turning parking uh, structures into even offices in some cases to, to be able to use that and uh, intermittent light there. And then, of course, the rooftop can also be a place for, for social things. So I, I think that's definitely an interesting uh, evolution. But we also talking about, you know, of course, the parking lanes uh, in every street. When you think about how much that those parking lanes uh, along both sides of the streets uh, that combine all together, it's, you know, almost every street has one. So it's almost 20% of all the road have those spaces. If you can claim those spaces and create park, create 
sculpture garden, uh, mini buildings, and other things. That can be an interesting infrastructure that go hand in hand with it. You know, so that's another thing that I've been thinking a lot about too: is how do we make city more livable and using the pandemic as a way of maybe you know give birth to a new solution. I love that. I love that. I mean, there's obviously such a huge need now for innovation and, and to think through things in ways that we never have before. And the idea of, of making cities more livable and, and actually life more livable is, I think, one of the, the, um, the positive things that can come out of the pandemic what are some of the other things that you've been thinking about whenever and, and, and however you have your most creative moments? What, what are the, some of the things that are rattling around in your head? Well, you know, I mean, one of the, the, the subject that's kind of been haunting me a lot is the idea that, you know, 2020 is def- definitely the year of redefining, right? We're redefining everything, you know, in a sense that, you know, before it's almost like up to this up to this year, we're just living life with happiness <laughs> and with no sense of uh, angst and anxiety because you, we're just taking for granted that school is a school, uh, office is an office, museum is a museum, and life is life. But 2000, we come around, and of course, it, it, in, in the shape of, you know, pandemic and unrest and social inequality and all of this around that we're not going to stop this year. But it really, in a way, gives us an opportunity to have to redefine everything. We have to have an opinion about how we want to work. We, we need to have a philosophy about how we live in a house together with our family, the sense of trust, the sense of, you know, kind of safety. Everything, uh, and, you know, by looking at people, they all react in a way that they feel they, they should, right? How people in each family quarantine together and how they separate. At the same time, every offices, every corporations I talk to is redefining how they're going to work from now. Are, are they going to go back to what was? Are they going to try to shrink the office and let people work off-site? Some friends, some corporations just come out and say, we're never going to have physical space again, period. Basically, it's going to be people working from their homes. And a lot of these empl- uh, workers uh, go back to their hometowns. So they're already back you know, in, in so many places. And to bring them back into one place and get them to work my nine to five again seems like a very archaic concept. <laughs> so you know, I think we're, we're so blessed with this redefining uh, agenda. But I've been thinking about that in a sense like, well, that needs a lot of creativity. And as we know that, you know, we humans tend to go to the, to, to the easy solution there. And I'm trying to kind of like, well, let's not go there yet. Let's really contemplate all of the other options we can do, you know, which is also in my case, my offices as well. I have office in New York and in LA. And so we're thinking, how do we really use that as a prototype or as a way of, you know, not only experiment new new, new way of working together, but but is there a way that we can really change that and bring some sense of kind of positivity to the city? Because if everyone migrate from the city and the city have no one living in there because everyone fear of human contact, 
then it chipped into the sense of being together. So I feel like a, as an architect, I have to contribute to the sense of empathy. I have to contribute to the sense of people liking one another and want to be together. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about all these notions uh, regarding the building types that I'm involved with. There's so many things in what you said which are so profound. This morning, I was thinking about how when we're masked, it, it gives people the opportunity to not look at other people. I'm staying in a hotel right now, and this fear of of the other, right, is somehow mm-hmm. being, I think, completely emphasized and exaggerated and, and worsened, frankly, um, through the masking. Somehow, I think with the mask wearing, it, it gives people like maybe an unintentional permission to to pretend that they can't see someone else. And there's such a great irony right now um, in that where this is a time with the social unrest and, you know, the efforts towards greater equality that people are asking, you know, in such a dramatic way to be seen. So there's there's so much contrast happening, right? There's so many seemingly um, diametrically opposed efforts happening simultaneously. And I'm really interested in in that idea of how space can be used to bring people back together, um, particularly at a time where there's so much fear. You're absolutely right. And then what's just said about mass is very profound. You know, I think I can't help thinking about the image of a thief in way back when, right? Is someone that have a handkerchief yeah. over their head because that's a way to disguise. And you're right. I mean, the, the license of, and not seeing a smile is also a very difficult thing, especially me coming from Asia and Thailand, basically, because we're in the land of smiles. And because you measure people's reaction and, you know, temperature through their body language and their facial expression. And not having that, you know, it kind of become like you have to develop a different skill set to really connect with people. And 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 and, and I, I, I like the idea that more and more, for example, restaurants are starting to open outdoor, and then all the all the waiters, all the wait staff are using this kind of transparent shield, right? Which is look a little bit like someone that work in hazmat uh, world, but at least <laughs> you can see the whole face, they can see the reaction, even though the sound might be kind of mute a little bit because of the echo, but you, you kind of develop a sense that, okay, we, you, we get to, 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 to relate to, to one another. So, but, so that's one thing that we do. But, you know, uh, going back to your questions, I think it's ab- absolutely the key for architects and designer now is how do you help people develop a sense of trust and empathy, which is, it's, it's, it kind of go beyond the, the pandemic because as we know, you know, people are, be, are being divided either by race, orientations, beliefs, and many things. And it's so easy to just uh, put something in the middle that make people don't want to be together because of fear and hatred. And I think that architecture always have the power to unite because we create a beautiful stadium and everyone in, in the stadium feel like, oh, what a moment for us to be witnessing this event together. And so we'd like to be together. This is why Rome is so great. We love to live here, right? So the sense of civic pride, there's a sense of community that architecture has a power to endorse. And so I'm hoping that 
you know, you know, instead of us only talking about, okay, how do we want to make our houses safe, what kind of surfaces, what kind of technology, which we can do, it's very easy to do in terms of using the technology, whether it's UV or materials that allow people to, to live safely in their own home. So that's the first step. But the second step is how do we create a public space or community buildings that allow people to feel safe gathering. So that take a little bit of, of, of thinking. I think, of course, in the beginning, the outdoor spaces will be crucial, but in places that you know climate might not allow, especially the falls and winters are coming, how do we create that sense of coming together? I think there's way to do it. I think, like what you said before, uh, it's all perception or psychology, so we have to make sure everyone feel uh, kind of confident about that. For example, where we have a project at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, uh, which you know was on hold and now coming back to restart again because it's a sense that we need this project to move forward. And uh, the Met is opening next week, you know, which I think is such a good sign of courage that such a big museum is now ready to let people in. And again, like what we talked about, the protocol of how people are admitted, how the distance, the way, you know, of course things have to be changed. So there's no touch, you know, so you can go into each room without having to touch the door or, you know, touch the doorknob or other things. So many ways the museum are doing, but once you get into the building, how can we create a sense of, empathy how how do people see one another and actually like to see one another rather than try to get away from each other <laughs> i think that's that's something that uh you know i think we, we we museums are doing more and more so two responses to that one you know i reference the fact that i'm in in denver right now and i'm staying in the cherry creek area and there are, is a ton of outdoor seating here which isn't specific to a restaurant. I mean, some of the restaurants, of course, have taken over some of the parking spaces and have tables outside. But just in and around this area, there are all sorts of benches, tables, places that like anyone can sit anywhere. And I haven't seen it, frankly, done as well as I have noticed it done here, because it's not you can just sit wherever you want. It's not like you have to go in and, and buy a coffee somewhere or, you know, get food from a specific place. You can just kind of, you know, do work on your phone uh, or read a book. And I've seen people doing all of those things, you know, together and independently. But people are sort of like alone and together simultaneously, which I think is working super well. But then also one of my daughter's friends started school yesterday in person, but at a new school. And she was texting my daughter and, and saying, like, you know, how do I make friends at a new school when I don't get to sit next to anyone? You know, where the desks are kind of pulled far apart. So there, wow. there are all these unexpected challenges, right? Wow, that's fascinating. Of course, let alone sports and even cafeteria, right, all of the, because school is not only just about education, it's, you know, everything around life as, as we grow up. That's fascinating to think that all of this extracurricular, you know, making friends, uh, having lunch together, doing sports and activities, how, again, I mean, this, all this redefining is, is almost overwhelming <laughs> because, because, you know, almost like, you know, like you have to almost, be conscious about every step you make because you don't want to just make those steps out of fear or out of isolation, 
But then, you know, you have to contemplate new ways of making friends, new ways of, you know, be able to live your life as, <laughs> as a young person. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Isn't it? I mean, all of these unintended consequences and we're social beings. I mean, not everyone, but it seems like most people prefer to be with other people and the skills that maybe we took for granted. I mean, that's one of the things that you started talking about, right? That, you know, things just kind of, we took for granted that things just are what they are, right? Being able to, to go to, to church, right? Or being able to go to school or, or people living away from their parents once they reach a certain age. You know, all of those things have kind of been uh, called into question. And, and now getting into more sort of micro categories too, right? Like all the skills that you develop to make friends uh, in school, now there are these kind of physical um, spatial inhibitors to, to those things too. That's very true. And, you know, what I fear is that, you know, it, of course, as we see already by, you know, the growth and profit of Amazon, right? People are driven to resort to digital solution. You know, people will be friend on Instagram and Twitter rather than in person. People will be buying things as we already do through digital means and no human interactions and all of that. But, you know, shopping is one thing, but making friends and living life is another. But, but if we all choose that as a way of, of doing that, you know, then, you know, it's almost like we, we're morphing into a different kind of human kind. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that you are, um, I think that you are right. And hearing you say that makes me want to, work really hard to not let that happen. <laughs> yeah, well, Heidi, I have a question for you because you're, you know, of yes. the curator and, and director, you're so artist front and center, right? You, you really uh, celebrate artist spirit, you know, give them a lot of freedom, give them a lot of platform, give them a lot of support and communicating to, to let them really be able to present the work in the best way, you know, seen through, you know, all the wonderful show you have done at the Aspen Art Museum. So within this, uh, what have you heard from the artist community? Are they feeling anguish or concern? Are there some thoughts that how art can really kind of start to kind of address this kind of new human redefining or agenda? We mm -hmm. ask artists all the time, you know, to, to solve things for us and to, to, I don't know, be responsible for so much and art to do that. And I think that artists need to just continue to make art, right? Like that's their job. And I mm -hmm. think it's really on, on us, like me and, and everyone else, you know, whose job it is to, to bring the work of artists to the greater public, you know, to, to solve that. And, and I feel the weight of that, you know? Um, and I guess that's part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast and with these books is, is to, try and get the broadest possible public to fall in love with art in the way that I have. So that, you know, the burden of, of sharing that access to art becomes shouldered by, you know, more people. And I'm, 
really struggling with this idea of how to best do it because you know as as much as I was happy to be in a museum yesterday you know there there didn't feel to me like an urgency um it, it just didn't feel like the space you know had progressed to um to meet the urgency of of our time so I don't know if I'm answering your question exactly other than to say that you know the artists that I've been talking to are feeling the the anxiety of our times and are I think looking to to making art as as a way to kind of address that but I don't know that they have come up with solutions for how people can can have access to what it is that they're creating and and I guess I feel like it's it's our job to figure that out yeah I completely agree with that too I feel that it's more, you know, I was wondering about what they feel rather than what mm-hmm. they feel they should do, right? Because I think, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, uh, I mean, no one should give a quick answer to this, even though you know, we need a quick answer to survive, to be able to live our life, you know, to a, to a certain sense of normalcy. But, but, but I feel that, you know, artists, you know, that pour their the thoughts of life and, and, and society and everything into their work, you know, there must be so much going on in their head, which, you know, like what you said, I agree that it would be unfair to be asking them to respond to something so fast and so direct. But I think I'm, I'm interested, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that this year and, you know, many other social issues that happen now will continue to be, you know, kind of the subject or the the sources of, of thinking for many, many years to come. And so with that, I, I was curious about, you know, art will hope maybe be, even be different. And so if it's different, how would museum be different? Like what you say, as a place to support and encourage and highlight, you know, the artistic uh, achievements, right? So I think all of these is almost happen uh, as a little bit of a paradigm shift that, you know, all of a sudden it's, I mean, because I felt like it, you know, this is almost like an earthquake that it hit some people, but it, it didn't hit the other. It's kind of a little random nature, but it brings a destructive aspect that, you know, linked the whole world together. So, you know, I think, I mean, of course we have not seen anything like this before and, and what I was thinking about before in a sense of, yes, we want to use all of these impacts and, and results as uh, the, the, the call for redefining uh, life or redefining art and architecture. And, but that redefining is not going to get done soon. It's going to be something that uh, gives birth to, I think, a very new way of making art and making architecture as well. You know, I, I talk a lot about the both and instead of the either or. And Mm -hmm. that's what I was thinking about as you were just just talking, right? Like the need for like really an urgent need to kind of solve this problem right now because there's so many institutions and um, and people who are, you know, suffering, right? And just on the brink of um, like that that tipping point of whether they're going to survive or not, you know, and whether spaces are going to reopen or not, you know, galleries, museums, uh, you know, just the, the economic impact and, you know, 
a lot of the jobs that that artists do um, to support their work and and their practice are you know have evaporated by right? like frontline work in museums or installations or different opportunities for you know a viable economic survival so th- so there is a sense of urgency right and and needing to solve a, a problem right now and then also you know there's a need for for a longer term solution you know an, an opportunity to think about how institutions can be sustainable over time and one of the things that that i think there might be an opportunity for is ironically to think about artwork being a little bit less precious. One of the things that's defined museums is is this need for um, climatized spaces, right? No one will loan works of art to a space that you know doesn't have perfect climate control. Um, but and and the benefit of that maybe is that you know the air can be cleaned and um, and maybe people will feel safe, like in kind of a filtered air, but. But what if, and I'm just completely like brainstorming right now, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. you know, as we're talking about kind of indoor outdoor spaces, you know, what if some of those regulations were relaxed and we could have fresh air, um, you know, if the artwork could be a little bit less fragile? Um, I don't know. Have you thought about that at all? Like, you know, what if the art maybe... It could be a little more organic um, or allowed to be a little more organic because certainly the spaces that it's created in um, aren't climatized and at the perfect humidity level. I think that's a good point. And, you know, uh, as you know very well, the AMD has been, you know, trying to relax that, you know, very strict, precise, you know, climate control, you know, standard in, in a given museum. I think American museums definitely have much stricter and more, um, you know, kind of requirements about climate control within the museum building itself, right? That, that's quite, quite, quite common, you know. I mean, um, I, think, I, mean the, I think the European museums uh, have that too, but not as strict in, in, my, in my experience. So within that, but okay, one thing, I don't want to go geeky on you on this, but uh, within- <laughs> I was thinking I was geeking out too. <laughs> <laughs> within the standard, okay. you know, in of, of the climate control right now, you know, 75, you know, uh, uh, temperature fluctuated, maybe 5%, humidity roughly 50% fluctuate, you know, less than 5 or 10%. So that's, but uh, uh, in addition to that, right now uh, in the museum, so it required that at a given time, uh, the air in the room is 25% fresh air. Uh, so, so that the 75 would be recycled air that go through and all of that. And the, uh, at a given time, they need to feed in 25% new air and then treat it again with temperature and humidity controls and then they can distribute into the museum spaces. So uh, it's a very costly operation. You know, I mean, the, 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 the climate control mechanical system uh, in a museum uh, is one of the most expensive, both to build and also to operate. So if you can relax that and be able to kind of start to, 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 to classify, you know, for example, if you have 50,000 square foot of, of, of museum gallery spaces, maybe not all of that have to be the same level of strictness. You know, there's, there's some flexibility there, both in terms of allowing exactly what you say, some fresh air or some ventilation to come through for some artwork that maybe not as 
fragile or demanding in terms of that case. Whereas, you know, if you need to, like, like if you borrow work and you need to put in, you know, per, you know, the, the lender's criteria has some space to do that. And that, you know, of course, as an architect, I think I like to advocate that because it allowed the museum to be less expensive to build and less expensive to operate. But the around, like you said, a variety of that. And, you know, people, I mean, people love fresh air and ventilations and breeze, especially when the seasons are allowed. So it might, like what you say, allow people to feel more comfortable to be in an indoor space, you know, even though it's kind of contained because they know that the, the air is circulating. But comparing to, you know, other building types, museum has much better air quality control <laughs> inside comparing to hotels. I'm sorry to say, because you're in a hotel building, <laughs> comparing to hotels or office buildings or others, museum, uh, 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 HVAC, the air condition and ventilation control is much cleaner and much safer than most because, you know, there's a regulation that you have to check, you have to clean because, you know, of course, the artwork required that, whereas in a hotel and office building, no one even go to the docks and check whether how you know, feel theory it is. <laughs> so just a little bit of that already. Can you talk with our listeners about some of your projects and, and some of the learning opportunities and not asking you which are your favorites, but some of your favorite things about some of your projects? Well, what, you know, you know, I, I really feel that... Um, my, you know, it, it, it's of course very cliche to say, but, but I, I really get uh, a lot of satisfaction with people enjoying the spaces I design. You know, I think whether it's uh, an art gallery or a museum or a public park or office building or homes and things like that. And it's not a personal thing it's like, oh, I love that my friend are having in their home. It's more like, wow, I feel like I'm in a way allowing them, allowing them is a strong word, you know, encouraging them or enabling them to live fully, you know, and, and live fully maybe in a sense of curiosity, in a sense of embracing, you know, not only just the physical comfort, but the curiosity and the the uplifting quality of you know what life is about, <laughs> so so allow them to kind of ask those kind of questions to themselves, and I think that art, art obviously does that to people, right? It 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 doesn't just give answer or delight or comfort, but it 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 provide a comf comfortable moment or a delightful moment that people then look into themselves and think about what the meaning of their life would be. And, and when that happened uh, in my work, I'm extremely happy because I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm allowing all of us to, to look inside ourselves and trying to kind of contemplate that, that questions. Again, that question have no real answer. It's not like, Oh, you're trying to find the right answer. But it's more about by the process of contemplating that meaning or that question, it allows you to kind of have virtues and have aspirations towards something that make your life, you know, worth living and 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 and, and kind of fuller. So so for, for that, I, I enjoy that moment and I try very hard to make that in my work, you know, with even not even museums or cultural buildings, but even in commercial buildings or 
some mundane, you know, public spaces. I feel like that's the the, the, run, the fundamental quality that you should, you know, in a way, let people's life flourish, but in their own way. <laughs> so so get them to to be comfortable first, and then once they're comfortable, once they're not hungry, once they're not, you know, kind of uncomfortable, then they can kind of in a place that they can kind of contemplate something finer and something more fuller. Yeah. God, I love that. I love that so much. You know, that was, that was one of my goals uh, in working with Shigeru Bon on, on the Aspen Art Museum. You know, I, I said, every floor needs to have, every floor in the museum needs to have a bathroom, um, a place to sit and a way to get outside. Um, so that when you acknowledge and make clear for people how to address their sort of creature comforts, then they can relax into having uh, a more elevated experience with works of art. And I love the idea of thinking about how to allow, and I think that is the right word, people to do that in domestic spaces and commercial spaces as well. Yeah, and, and you've done a great job there. You know, I think, you know, I mean, because the quality of light, the museum is beautiful. Each floor functions as its own destination, right? Because then, like you said, you have the outdoor space, you have the bathrooms. And of course, when you go up to the roof, it has a sense of connecting, connect, connecting to the mountain, connecting to the city. I think that's, for me, uh, a museum is so much about civic pride because when you look at art, you know, you must, I, in my way of, 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 of designing a museum, you know, I, I want people to feel like, oh my God, I'm looking at this amazing painting and I know exactly that I'm in Aspen. Or I'm looking at this amazing sculpture, I know exactly I'm in Paris, right? That all have to connect because then there's a sense of pride, a sense of love for city. And when you love city, you almost have to love people because city is 100% man-made. <laughs> so, so the idea of, you know, that we are better together rather than just stand alone. I mean, that's why, I, you know, in this time of pandemic, I'm very keen to support the sense of civic pride and urban pride and city initiatives because if we believe that city is a good thing, is something that uh, better than we us alone living in the country, then we will learn to love each other because we need each other to make a good city. That's a super fascinating concept. So last night I, I saw a, a post on LinkedIn where someone was advertising making a home office in someone's backyard and, and making a business around doing that. And the post was sort of slightly cynical and saying, okay, you know, here's, here is the start of, of what's next. And, and then I, I read also something, a post today um, from a, a colleague um, who talked about how it used to be like working at home and now, and it was an image of his desk. And he said, he's gone from working at home to living at work. And <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I was really struck by that. Because, of course, the space hasn't changed. It's, you know, just his laptop on, you know, a desk in, you know, in his apartment. And, you know, I wonder how we encourage people to, I don't know, you know, what what's our responsibility with that? You know, do we need to show people that it can be done differently, that it doesn't have to be that way? And 
does that go back to your idea of you know celebrating cities as as a way of celebrating you know people and and diversity and, and difference? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, it's very intriguing what you just said. And you know, at the at the beginning of the pandemic, right, March and April and May, uh, I was very clear that I'm gonna just let people work from home and really re define the office as almost like a clubhouse so that people work from home most of the time and they come to the office, which, you know, we will redefine. We will have, you know, beautiful gardens and swimming pool and private chef and all of that so that when people come to be together, you know, we program them, you know, when people come in, there's, you know, series of meetings and presentations and brainstorming and model making and all of these things so that the time together can be very productive and program almost so that it feel like, you know, when you're alone by your, and you're home, you're productive because you have isolation, but when you're together, you get the benefit of being together, which is, you know, inspire one another and brainstorm and so forth. But now as we going more forward, now I'm thinking, you know what, you know, like, like exactly what you say about your daughter's friend, like going to school is not just about education. It's about friendship. It's about learning how to be a full human being. And even though you can do that, you know, online and other things, what kind of person would that person become? <laughs> that how, what kind of friends would they make? Do they have social, you know, kind of, you know, skills? Do you have, you know, sense of understanding of one another and other things? I, I was you know, struck by it just like last week that, no, I think, even though it doesn't seem innovation, I'm just going to try to go back to what, like what we have, like a place that everyone can work together. There's a cooling, the, the, the water cooler, people go and hang out. There's garden where people go have lunch together. And maybe we do, you know, three days in the office and two days at home or something like that. But I find it very difficult that, you know, everyone would go and work at their home and just think of that as work, you know, that will be fully develop as, 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 as a workplace? Well, at first it seems like letting people work at home is gracious and generous. But then I, as I've been thinking about it more, I think look, what I've learned in life is that every time you take the easy solution, it's never the right one. <laughs> right? <laughs> everything that, right? I mean, everything that's worth doing is hard. You know, everything uh -huh. that feels like an accomplishment takes effort um, and repetition and commitment. And that's what we're looking for in people, right, is, is grit. And, um, and adversity brings that, that opportunity, you know, for, for grit. And I was thinking about your idea of, of the clubhouse and, and bringing people together just when they need to work together. And, you know, as you were saying, make models or brainstorm. But if people don't have the opportunity to be around each other in a non-productive way, then I don't know how productive they'll be able to be when they come together to be productive. You know, I was, I was thinking about the uh, podcast that I did with um, Seth Price, and he was talking about how so much of his creative process seems from the outside or looks from the outside like it's not productive because it's like walking around making coffee listening to music maybe picking up a book and 
and you run a you ran a you run a creative business, right? And so, so much of that um, creative business is is about the the seemingly unproductive times, right? Because that's when our mind is quiet and um, distracted. And and for me, it's when I am allowed to be distracted, whether it's you know on a run or in the shower, that I often have my most productive ideas. I don't know if you have the same experience. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, and and you know I, I was really kind of oscillating between the two, between like exactly what you say. It seems like people are happy at home, and therefore a lot of people who work from home seem to be uh, the act of generosity, or you know allow them to be who they are. But then you know I think then one plus one doesn't equal more than two. <laughs> so how do we do that, That's right? right? And it's yeah. it's not yeah. just about and, and I think it's funny as it is because I observe my own staff and more and more people are now actually want to work together. You know, some people, I mean, even single people or people that have family and young children in the beginning, they like the idea of being with there with their family to be able to do that. But then they miss their own self. You know, they miss their own self outside of the family, even when they're trying to go away to work uh, in a different space, uh, in a different room in a house. They still feel that the sense of, you know, kind of the aspect is, is it's, it's different. And, you know, and, 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 can, and I can't help thinking a lot about what Hannah Arendt talked about human life, right? I mean, we have basically, we have labor and we have work and we have action. So labor is basically the biological needs that we all do. And then work is what we do to create the world we live in. And then action is how do we make it? What is our will? What is our involvement in society? And I think making people work from home almost limit the ability to, to have the spirit of action. Like you're almost like you reduce them back to labor, which is, you know, biological family and something that we do as living things on earth. And then a little bit of work, which is about producing and be, be productive in the, in the culture, in the world we lived in. But the idea that they can be really kind of a, a political animal or a social animal that allow them to have life beyond just the mundane two category is kind of strip away. And of course, they can do that online, but it's not the same. So I felt like, well, there's really a need for people to come together. And I agree with you because even if the, you, you have the best moderator, the best concierge that can allow people to come together, be productive together, you know, you can't program that. You can really just imagine that people would know how to do that. And there will be, you know, pearls of wisdom coming out as we were together the first minute. So I feel that, you know, I mean, since then, I've been like going back to the ideas. Like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. So if I maintain the office like what I have before, how do I let people stay at home enough, but are so hungry enough to be together with other people? That is so great. And <laughs> I love how you continue to reference history and thinkers and um, just knowledge of kind of the evolution of the social contract, you know, as you're making decisions and thinking about space and thinking about honestly what it's like to be human and, and how we live our best lives. So, I'm just fascinated by all of this and, and so grateful for our conversation.
Thank you. I'm so glad. And, you know, I, I'm such a big fan of what you have done at the museums. You know, of course, the Aspen Art Museum and many other shows you have done. You know, I still have the Orozco book that you did, which is one of my favorite artists. So it's, it's so wonderful to see all of that as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. And, and thanks for being available to, to talk. I, I think that people will learn a lot from what we talked about today. And hopefully that's how we continue to impact the world that we live in and, and make it the way that we want to see it. Absolutely. And thank you very much for, for having me. My pleasure. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simon Illa. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. Blake Migden assists with social media content editing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.